Hey, Ann Barner. Hey, Karen Beatty. We need a promo. You know, like where we talk about what we do on our podcast. On our sugar-coated murder podcast? Like how we love to bake and talk about murder? That's what we need to talk about. There you go. I think we've talked about it. Y'all find us on all your favorite listening apps. Stay sweet. And don't murder. Because if you kill people, we will talk about you. The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, Murder Bookies, to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. I am your host, Jill. I hope the holidays are going well. And this is episode 79, a sugar-coated interview with Ann Varner and Karen Devaney of the Sugar-Coated Murder podcast, the authors of Click, Click, Click. My podcast features the best true crime books out there, and this is one of them. So frustratingly, many of us have no time to read, so I read for you. Now, a little bit about our authors, Karen Devaney and Ann Varner. They are sisters who grew up in Franklin, Virginia, which is where this case of missing and murdered Trent Ritley takes place. These ladies are truly my spirit sisters. They have their hearts in the right place. And this is the first book in a series that they call Say My Name, which emphasizes the importance of remembering the victims. I really encourage you to read the book. Click, click, click. And now I'll introduce you to Anne and Karen. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us, Jill. We appreciate it. Oh, gosh. I love you guys. We had such a great time talking at CrimeCon. Yes. Then I read your book and I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> thank you. This, this needs to be featured on the podcast. Oh, thank I, you. Any excuse to hang out with you guys, it's all. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> I know. I, I want you to know, I was just listening with my husband before and you were talking about octoballs and <laughs> he was dying. He was just dying. Just, we were howling. It was just so awesome. <laughs> I said, yeah, this is why I love these ladies. I get their sense of humor. They get my sense of humor. It's awesome. I, it's all the same. It's all the same <laughs> sense of humor. It's just sick and twisted. And we we never know what's going to come out of our mouths. No, we don't. freaking love it. Now it's a thing. Hashtag balls. Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Jump right in here, giving you much chance to breathe. But one of the first questions I have for you is, where did the title come from? Click, click, okay. click. Okay, now go ahead. By the way, coming up with the title for your book is one of the hardest parts about writing the book. I agree. And a lot of people say, oh, the book will name itself. And it kind of did. Yeah. It, as we were, um, we had written all of the words and we were trying to put things in order and there is a place in the book where the the two killers and their victim are out at the scene of the crime before the crime has happened. And one of the murderers has a gun in his hand that the victim does not know exists. 
and he is cocking it and uncocking it. And it's making this click, 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 click. And the victim doesn't hear it, but the other murderer does. And in the book, he's trying to figure out, is that him cocking and uncocking the gun? And why is he doing that? Is he trying to intimidate the victim or like, He's freaking me out. Like, why is he making that noise? And so as we were going through it, we just were like, okay, that's a huge turning point, I think, in the book is when that the cocking and the uncocking of the gun, you know, it's coming. And then later in the book, there's a scene where one of the murderers is in his car and he turns his turn signal on and that same click, click, click goes. Takes him right back to that scene. Yeah. Thank you for that, because I was wondering, as I remember both those sections in the book, and I remember thinking, is that in there because of something else you wanted to use that name, or did the name stem from these two events? And yeah. like you said, it named itself from those those instances. Yeah, it really did. It did. I don't think I want to think about writing a book. <laughs> I have a hard enough time keeping up with the podcast. Well, so, excuse me, I'm going to reach over and try to get the jar of treats. Is it this one? This one. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can quiet him down a little. <laughs> well, we like puppies. We like pets. We like kitties. They're welcome to join in and be a co-host. <laughs> Don't worry. He I knows. think that his pitch would not be appreciated by your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> My pitch. But mm. anyway, writing a book is very difficult. I'm going to tell you we've started this much on the second book. <laughs> This much. <laughs> I think 1,500 words is what we've written so far. we got a long ways to go. Oh, boy. 200 pages. 200 pages. I'm hoping that over Christmas break, we can get some stuff done. Get focused in. So it's, yeah, well, it's difficult. You know, you talk a little bit in the book about how the book came about. Yes. yes. How did you get the guts to do it? I don't know. Well, so Jill, for us, we come up with the most harebrained things to do. <laughs> And when we come up with these harebrained ideas, we just do it. We, we don't go through what are the consequences or what does this entail? We just are like, oh, we have all of this information. What are we going to do with it? Well, we should write a book. Okay, let's write a book. Two it, months later, we were like, I think we should start writing that book. And we, we did. And it, it, it literally <laughs> fell into our laps, though. It, yeah. You know, you're reading along way that it came about is one of the murderers reached out to us and we ended up meeting with him face to face. Another harebrained idea. I don't know what we were thinking. I really don't. And, no. and we still ask each other, what were we thinking <laughs> when we went and met with him face to face in an office with the door locked, just the three of us. And nobody knew where and we were. We didn't like, tell we didn't anybody. anybody what we were doing. No. That is like a violation of true crime 101. Yes. You plaster, right? All over social media. I am going here to meet a person I haven't met yet. Well, look, he happens to be a murderer. I know. And you didn't tell me. What happened was we asked people about going. We asked the lead detective in the case who we had talked to extensively and said, hey, this, the guy wants to sit down and meet with us and tell us his side of the story. And he was like, you should not do that. And we're like, oh, well, let's ask somebody else. And we actually well, he said the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> we asked dad, now we're going to go ask mom. So you know who Catherine Ramsland is, right? Absolutely. Okay. Well, we seen her at Savannah Crime Expo that year. 
And we had seen her talk on Dennis Rader and all the, you know, her writing the book with him and this. I got this harebrained idea that I would write to her and say, hey, we've got this murderer from our hometown that's out of jail now. And he wants to meet with us and tell us his side of the story. Do you have any advice for us on how to control the situation or how to control the narrative? And she wrote back and said, you absolutely should not do this. You're not professional. You're not prepared for this. And I would never recommend for somebody to do this. So I was like, looks like we're doing it. (laughs) Okay. So we've talked to the cop. We've talked to the expert in criminal psychology. And they both said, don't do it. We're going. We're going to do it and not tell anybody. So we just won't tell. Typical toddlers. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff we do. We're really dangerous as sisters. That's the problem. Yeah. Our family sometimes tries to keep us apart. (laughs) For good reason. (laughs) I don't know if I would have the guts. I think you're incredibly brave for doing it. But thank thank you for doing it. Yes. But I wouldn't do it by myself. But I would go with my sister any time of the day. Like any time. I would never do it by myself. Right. Agreed. And But one thing to consider, too, is we grew up in the same town with this person. We knew him, we knew his family, his brothers, you know. So I think at the time we were more relating, even though we had had multiple conversations on the phone where we cried and we hung up and we were like, I think I have PTSD from that conversation. We still kind of thought of him as that kid that we grew up with. Yeah. So I don't think until we sat down and heard the click of the door. Yeah. We were like, holy crap. Another click. And then later when we came out, we were shell-shocked. Yeah, there's a big difference between having a phone conversation and not seeing the person's face and having a face-to-face conversation about how he murdered another person and realizing that you can have caring words or enunciate your words in a certain way, but your face is telling a different story. Yeah. What story was his face telling you? In the book, you are very much in his head. And that fascinated me. Yeah. You know, I've done dozens of books at this point, and I've read many, many on murderers. You know, oh, just fun time at my house with my library. But I don't always get the sense that, oh, they're telling us the truth. No. When you're being interviewed or you're getting a transcript from a discussion with a police officer or, right. you know, they're still, even years later, they're still kind of bending that, that truth while Mike seemed to be talking a lot about himself, but thank you, I got that internal dialogue. Mm -hmm. I think he's truthful about at least his perceptions and what was going on in his head. Still seemed to be downplaying a little. Yes. Absolutely. Truthful about the facts of the case. Truthful about this is how we planned it. This is how we covered it up. This is how we got away with it. Very truthful. Almost to the point of pride. Right. And that's what's oh. disturbing. Right. He's proud that he did it. Yeah, I'm not painting him as overly honest. Proud. Right. He's proud <laughs> that he did it. He got away with it. He was smarter than the cops. He was smarter than the down. So that comes from a place of, of pride. And it's I think as a as a completely unprofessional psychology junkie, it's very difficult to have remorse and pride at the same time. Agreed. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That they're talking to him. There was no, I mean, Ann and I would get emotional about the things he was saying, but there was not, he got upset with us when we showed emotion. 
Yeah, he would like he'd say, "Oh, let's uh, let's keep podcast yeah. out of it. Let's keep the podcasters out of it." I'm, I'm talking like, you know, one on one. Human like, beings, and you've upset me because you're describing this poor boy's brain matter all over your clothes. Yeah, and that is upsetting to me. <laughs> of course, we didn't say anything. We just kind of sat there, We're and sat. like dumbfounded, like yeah, you know. Well, and when we did get emotional, he threatened to shut it down, and we wanted to get this story from him. Yeah, so we had to sit in it. And even after all of that was said and done, and we knew we were going to write a book, we had his permission to write a book. Yeah. We had all of the information. We reached out to him several times while we were writing the book. When it got to the point where we said, okay, the book is written and we've sent it to the beta readers, which are the people who do the review for you to say, this is garbage. I don't understand this. Or did you go to grammar school? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. And he wanted a copy of it. And we were like a week away from publishing. We were probably 30 days away from publishing, but we had to rush the publishing because he suddenly he wanted to grew. insert himself in it. And, you know, this is something that Ann and I worked on ourselves for nine months. That's our baby. Yeah. I don't care what the story is. These words and these, the way that our, we expressed it, that's our brainchild. Right. And we weren't willing yes. to just give it over to somebody. Well, and he came back, he looked at some of it and he was like, oh, you can't leave that out. That will really upset my family. Oh, you can't put, you have to leave it out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You have to leave yeah. that out because that'll upset my family. Or but that makes me look bad. Really? You say, oh, well, this part makes me look bad. Well, how much worse can you look? You killed this guy. You this guy. He's, <laughs> he's worried about how people are going to perceive him, yes. the convicted murderer, yes. the confessed murderer. Yes. And he's worried about how this part, what that part is going to play out. Whoa. It really highlighted because he wanted to take control. He thought that we were going to write a book with him, that he was going to tell us what to write and yeah. we were going to write it down. Sure he did. The strong Southern women, mm -hmm. and that's not who Karen and I are. No, we're not. We're not going to be told what to do. No. So we actually published two weeks early. We rushed. We, it. we called our editor and said this has to go. We did. We talked to a lawyer. <laughs> we talked to two attorneys. Yeah. We talked to uh, like a corporate attorney, and then we talked to copyright a copyright attorney who actually teaches. She's written books, and she's been on our podcast. She's wonderful, and she teaches classes about copyright. Yes. So we engaged with her and she just gave us some advice and said, I think, I think you're covered. Well, we had everything in writing and, and, and tape recording. Re we had him on the recording. I mean, he sat with us for four and a half hours recording this, knowing that we were going to write a book. Yeah. So. And we didn't hide anything from him the whole way. We asked him questions about, yeah. you know, the hat, his friend went back and, and got, got the, hat. the hat the next day and then wore it to basketball practice. We asked him about that. And he clarified it for us. We didn't so, make anything up. Mm -mm. So no, we, we didn't have to. You had his cooperation. Exactly. First book, he's threatening to, I no longer give you permission to. We were like, too late. We were like, I said, don't read that email. And we published and we didn't read the email until after we published. And then we were like, oh gosh, we didn't read this email until after we published. Sorry. Oopsie. Yeah. Last email to him was, no, you're no longer allowed to be in touch with us. Yes, we no longer want any contact from you. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I was going to say, first, I can see why he would get cold feet. <laughs> sure. you know, he, he, you know, 
when I was talking about things that he was telling you, I was also going back to the teenager who lost his dad, who goes down the rabbit hole of, Mm -hmm. you know, laughing out at his family and his poor mother and all of this. And, you know, it's conspiracy. And then that takes over. Yes. But the guilt is there from the beginning. I mean, he's wrestling with that. Yeah. So I ruled him out as a psychopath, but he is totally narcissistic here. Yes. Yeah. Because in his explanation, it is in his head, but it's all about him in his head. Yes, it really is. It is. And I just, I guess you can read about that kind of a personality, but until you really and truly experience it firsthand, you don't understand the, the depth of logic that for me, I can't make the connections, but he, it's the way he thinks. Right. And it's, it's really difficult to deal with that. And then also knowing on top of that, how can you not have been humbled when you took a human life? Like, what, wouldn't that humble a person? And it didn't. So then you think, my gosh, there, this is off. Like, this is way off. Yeah. <laughs> because for me, I'm just, you know, we were so empathetic to, This boy who lost his life at 17 years old, he lost his life. He no longer existed. He didn't get to graduate from high school. He like, you know, he lost his life and what all of that meant and what that meant to his family. And so we were in a very empathetic feeling about this whole thing, which really, truly a narcissist angered him. Right. Because it seemed like we were on the victim's side and not on his side. You're not focusing on him. <laughs> right. A narcissist can't put up with that. You're telling the story of how I did this thing. Yeah, and yeah. the target, oh, well, he's irrelevant. My planning went into this and, you know, how I drove the car and my feelings about all of this and how I had to deal with my guilt and my poor family and never, never huh. making that, that gulf is way too wide. He's not going to make that jump and say, Oh, oh, the victim. You yeah. feel bad for him. No, he can't. No, no, that's not. That's not going to happen. No, Boy, no. does that come out in the book. Yeah, well, I'm glad that it does come out and that it and that people that read it are understanding that. Because oh. I, I think for Anne and I, we don't want to just highlight. I mean, our goal, our main goal, of course, is to highlight Trent and his life and how it ended so senselessly, but also how this line of thinking in a young person who's not being checked on can really take them to a bad place. Right. And that's what happened here with these two guys. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think there was, you know, there was a lot of meaning behind that for us as well to make sure that, I don't know, maybe if somebody reads this, that they'll make a different decision. Right. These thoughts in my head, maybe I need to go talk to somebody a professional about it because I don't want to go there. Or or a parent. If a parent yeah. and they're like, oh yeah, my my kid is locked away in the basement and I, know, I don't know what's going on down there. Maybe they'll yeah. take the door off the hinges because you're the parent. Go down in the basement and check on your child. Exactly. Like, listen, I can see how that can happen. You've had your, your 54-year-old husband just basically drop dead on you out of the, the blue. Yeah. Everybody's in shock. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, this is a man who is beloved in town, yeah, you know, right. has, has this whole family that he loves and adores. Clearly, Mike loved his dad, I think, as much as he was capable of loving or he looked up to him or for whatever reason. And he goes into this spiral 
but everybody else is grieving. Right. Yes. Because it's not that long. It's what, two years later, probably less than two years after his dad's death that yeah. they put this whole thing in action. How long right. have they been planning it? So I see a cause effect here, not yes. justifying anything. Absolutely no, not. Where the thing, where the lights got dim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And because you're trying to cope with your loss, loss of your husband, keeping your family going, keeping your house. So all of a sudden, not just your life partner, but the person that provides for you every day is like literally right. just swiped right out of your life. And now yes. you're a single mom. You've got a kid still in high school and he's real pissed off. I mean, and you've got older kids that are grieving the loss of this patriarch and yep. you're having to pick up the pieces. I don't blame her. Oh, no. At all. I don't, I don't know. Where this certainly, it just would happen so easily because she had so much on her plate and she was devastated. And so I don't think there was any intention there. No, no, no. But I think if someone else who's living a parallel life that's going in that direction and a child in that home or a nephew or whoever starts spiraling, yes, maybe, maybe that radar just can tweak a little bit and it may really help. Yes. And there's something to say about grief counseling. I think grief counseling is really important and especially for young, young children that lose a parent. I think grief counseling is almost a must because you have to learn, you know, with boys 17 years old, they are nothing but a swirling cyclone of hormones. (laughs) Like, where do you put put those feelings in that cyclone of testosterone? Like it doesn't fit. Right. So of course it's going to come out as anger. And they just, you know, at that age, they don't have the coping mechanisms that they need to have to make logical decisions. Yeah. They need guidance. Yeah. And unfortunately, the the radar was not bleeping. It It, it just fell off the radar when that was going on. Yeah. And this friendship that formed between these two murderers, this ride or die, it's the two of us against the world. It just was able to bloom and, and take life. I mean, yeah. it just was a, it was like, we called it the dark passenger Yeah. because when they were together, it was like there was a, another entity in the back seat of their car riding along with them and feeding them this, these feelings of the world is against us and we need to get back control. If you're having these horrible, dark feelings and thoughts and whatnot, and there's somebody else who is also experiencing them, that is a validation too. Right. I'm not alone. Look, he gets it. He understands yeah. it. And off they go, spiraling yeah. into this this dark passenger and accepting these thoughts as, yeah, we can do this. We can really do this. Yeah. And, and gosh darn it, they went and did it. They did. They did. They really did it. And they, yeah. and they didn't get caught and they covered it up. And that to me is somehow a nod to their intelligence in a really sick way. Right. Because- they had to plan. They had to plan things. They had to carry it out. They were organized about this. Very organized. It's oh, yeah. And I'm not saying that Franklin had a bad police department at the time, but I don't think anybody thought anything like this could happen. No. So I don't know that they were. Um, I think some of them maybe decided from the very beginning that this wasn't a murder, that this was something different, that he just ran away because they couldn't in their mind think, why would why would this student be killed. Right. 
Exactly. Yeah. I don't think it ever entered their mind that it would was murder. There was no body, first of all. There was no crime scene, no body. Right. Why would you think murder? Would yeah, it's not like there was blood spatter in the back seat or something. It was just yeah. an empty car with a window down. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I'm yeah. not sure that they dug as deep as they could have dug. They were certainly a lot missed when they they got the car. Yeah. Um, they didn't process it for, for weeks, left it outside with the windows down and I think they probably could have pulled some stuff out of that car if they had, <laughs> but if they had dusted inside or looked for fingerprints or hair. But you know, I think police investigation has come a long way yeah. in a very short time. Yes. And it I has. also think this is a small town, a very small town with a small police force. Yeah. And so, you know, you're, you don't have on, you know, you probably have one or two detectives in the whole police force because you don't need it. You know, yeah. you don't need it. So they're, they're, they're busy trying to track down stolen bicycles. They're not, they're not dealing with murder every day. It's not like Chicago or wherever, like a big city. Right. So I don't know that it would have gone unsolved for so, for so long, long mm-hmm. if it was in a bigger city. Right. Today in true crime, the first thing you think of is the husband did it. Look to the immediate family, right? Right. But then you move on to who was last with the victim. Right. And they put themselves there. They did. did, But they also lied about their interaction with him because they said they were supposed to meet him and he never showed up. And they took them at their word. And part of the reason because Mike was from a prominent family in the community. Because the same thing happened to those other boys who were suspects, where they he was supposed to go to a party with them. The police really, when I say they went after those boys, they made their lives miserable. For two and a half years, they followed them. But they didn't do that to Mike and Fred. No, they didn't. They didn't. And I think it was because Mike was from a prominent family. Everybody knew his family. And so they would have never suspected that. But those other three boys that were the original suspects, they remained the prime suspects for two and a half years. And these kids were, they, it started out in high school yep. and they lived in that town and the police continued yeah. to go after them, question them, almost harass them to the point that they developed PTSD from that. Yeah. To this day. To this day, because they were suspects in their best friend's murder. It was really difficult to handle. Did they ever get an apology for being treated that way? No. I don't think so. No. Not that we're aware of. Mm. The response they got was they, doing our job. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Listen, the, the whole plotting, the, the murder, it's upset that daylight's out of me. But you know what really got me was when I'm reading along and you're telling me that Fred makes this statement that he's going to kill Trent Whitley in front of witnesses, possibly a teacher. And after this poor kid goes missing, Within no weeks. one said a word. The code of silence. Oh, my gosh. It's, How crazy it's, is that? It's very, very disturbing. Yeah. Holy mackerel. Because if one person had just mentioned that to the authorities... This could have taken on a whole different flavor. It could have yeah, given an anonymous. Was a, there was an anonymous tip line out there for all those yes. years. People could have just called it in anonymously. Oh, and listen, practical. There was a $5,000 reward. Yeah. 
That is so beautiful that you did that. I, I'm quite frankly, I'm sorry that it took that long to have it done. Agreed. But clearly this story was waiting for you. It was I waiting so. to be told. And I think it was waiting for us. I think the universe said it's time for it to be told. Mm-hmm. And somehow we were trusted to do it. And I'm, I think we're really proud of the way that we did it and that we carried out the goal, which was to memorialize Trent. He is a permanent fixture in that town now, no matter what. Yep. Bolted to the ground. Yes, so a big cement slab. It is not going anywhere. No take it. <laughs> we made sure it was not going to walk away. That Did you get feedback from Trent's family? You know, murder is a very hard thing to talk about with the family. Oof. We had spoken to his brother at length when we were doing all of our research, when we first thought we were going to be doing a show for the Discovery Channel. And the investigator went and talked to Trent's dad. And it's still too painful. It's just too painful for them to talk about. His mother has passed away. One of his brothers has passed away. He has another brother that lives out of state. And we made a promise to the brother that we spoke to that even if the show didn't get made, somehow we were going to find a way Mm -hmm. for the people in that town to say his brother's name. Because he said, nobody talks about my brother anymore. And we're going to find a way. We don't know how we're going to do it at that time. We were like, we have no idea how we're going to go about doing this. But somehow we're going to do it. And we're going to find a way to memorialize your brother. And he was so grateful. And I will tell you that about maybe two months, three months after we got it all installed, that brother passed away. He did. And so just so thankful. He was never well enough to go out to see the garden but he knew that the book had been written and the garden was there and he passed away. And I hope that he was proud. I really do. There's little doubt in my mind he was. And listen, I understand. I just needed to know if they were involved in what level, but we're telling this story. You, you knew these people growing up, you know, I'm reading this story and I was emotional about it and have no ties and connections to them. So deal with, Deal with this loss the way you have to. Yeah. And I think knowing that what you did, that his name is spoken, Trent Whitley. Yes. That I'm sharing that name. I'm sharing your story as much as I can. It's terribly, terribly important to to say the name. Yeah. Say your name. Make this about him, not about the person or people that did it. Right. Not about them. It's It's about it's not their story, it's his story. Right. And that's what we that's what we I think did. We we met with the murderer, but we took that story and made it Trent's story. Right. And that was really important to us. And it's gonna be important to us. You know, we this is a series now. We've decided this is this is our path. And we started our next book, like I said, but like this much, but <laughs> it's all under the Say My Name series because we want these victims to be remembered for who they were put on earth to be not for who they ended up being, because nobody is born to be a murder victim. Nobody. And you know, it's not always easy. It's not easy because most of the information that you find out about people that are murdered is in their obituary. Yeah. So there's not a lot of information that you can pull in. There's only so much you can put in. You've got to tell the story of what happened. There's only so Mm -hmm. much you can do. It's not some kind of a biography on his life. This is... The most important event that happened in his life, unfortunately, was his demise. 
the goal wasn't necessarily to talk about his life because we didn't really know a whole lot about it. We got, we did as much as we could. Yeah. The goal was to have people in the community recognize that this terrible thing happened to a member of their community. And we always yes. wondered about it. And now we know what happened to him. And now there's a memorial in our town for him because he needed a memorial in that town. He grew up in that town. His family has lived in that town for forever. Yeah. So it's yes. not, you know, doing your research uh-huh. and stuff on murder victims is, that is not easy. No. <laughs> so we have oh, believe me. story in some kind of a way. Yeah. They get forgotten. Their legacy becomes what happened to them. Right. And we have to change that narrative, especially in the true crime community. We have to change the narrative because it has to be victim central or you're you're in it for the wrong reason. Right. I agree. And, you know, we full time jobs. So it's not like we're <laughs> authors and we're you we're know making authors. millions of dollars. We don't have a big publisher. We did our own self-publishing. Yep. But our, our ultimate goal was to tell the story and to memorialize Trent. Yeah. Well, I think you achieved that. You look glimpse inside the mind of a murderer. Woo! Yeah, that's... Oh, yeah. You hit that out of the ballpark. Let me tell you, that was incredible. Well, he made um, I read so many murder books, some that I do and some that I choose not to do. And you're so right. Many times looking for the, the victim in the story can be really difficult. Yeah. That's why I always do what I call second cast. Third episode is part of second cast, where I'll finish the story. But then I will have looked up and researched the victims in as much detail as I can find going back to old newspapers. I'm sure you did the same thing, pulling out statements from people who knew so-and-so and where they were and yeah. what they did. And, and it is, it's really grueling. The biggest challenge I had is when I did, she married the Green River serial killer. Oh, Gary Ridgeway has 49 victims. Right. And if I did a minute on each victim, there's a whole episode right there. Sure. I managed to say something about each and every one. And it was a labor of love. It's not all about him. The book came from the the viewpoint of of what happened when she was married to him. Yeah. There, There are victims here that I'd like to talk about and highlight. And I did the same thing we did. I did a book on Ted Bundy. Right. Oh, wow. I think what happens is it's easy to write about the murderer because once they do these heinous crimes, every part of their life is dissected and studied and analyzed. And it's printed in media, talked about on talk shows, in podcasts, things like that. It's the easy part is the murderer. Right. And I think you're right. It is a labor of love to go and find something about that victim that that shows that victim was a, a, a viable human person and was not born to be a victim. They had a different yeah. purpose on this earth and, and to give some flavor of who they were before this horrible thing happened. And it is a labor of love because it's not easy to find it all the time. No, no, you really have to dig. It's really, it's hard. And th- thank you so much oh, for remembering Trent for bringing this case to my attention, because I sure had never heard of it. I'm happy, thrilled to be promoting your book and the story so that more people can say his name. And there's our guy. There he is. (laughs) Yeah. What a sweetheart. Yep. Well, we appreciate that you've read the book and that you're doing this. 
to highlight it. It's another way for Trent to get his name out there. Oh, yeah. And his story to be understood mm-hmm. by other people that are outside of our little hometown. I think we felt like not many people were going to read it. And I think more, I people, more people read it than we thought were so going to read it. So we are a year. It's been a year since we published and we've sold over 900 copies of our book. Yeah. Not bad. That is fantastic. That means 900 people out there have said Trent's name. That's right. And that's so important. That aren't necessarily from Franklin or even Virginia. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, that's That's even better. So that's why we appreciate you, Jill, and and talking to us about this because, again, some more people are going to hear about him. Yep. Yeah. I tried to put him and what you found about him at the center while I'm telling your story, because it's your story. So I want to, want to make sure I do that accurately and respectfully. And by the way, I don't tell you everything. So you still have to read the book yourselves. Yeah. Murder bookies. Exactly. There's so much. You need to read there. it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You get a little insight into what that quirky little town is about. That's right. <laughs> and the way that we left our mark on that town in more ways than one. <laughs> Definitely. Ladies, thank you so much. Oh, Trout, you've been so good. Uh, You've been such a good puppy. He's going to have to go on a diet. I know. I think he's gained like three pounds just sitting here tonight because he's had so many treats to try to keep him quiet. Well, he was a wonderful co-host. And ladies, thank you so much. Jill, thank Thank you. you, you. Again, another opportunity to hang out with you. Exactly. Yes. We have to come up with more. Honestly, we've got to put our heads together. I'm sure we will. We'll get creative. Definitely. I'll let you know when uh, yeah, when the episode airs. And listen, stay sweet. Ah, oh, don't murder. Because if you kill people, we'll talk about you, and we might write a book about you. We will write a and book. We're about never going to be nice about it. No. Well, there you go. I can feel the murder rate drop. <laughs> there it is. You are right part save the world. There's the deterrent. Here, they thought it would be the death penalty. No, because no. Karen and Anne are going to talk about you. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, ladies. Take care. Bye. Well, Murder Bookies, that wraps up my interview with Anne and Karen, the authors of Click, Click, Click. I truly had such a wonderful time chatting with them and getting all their insights into how the book came about. I'm so glad to hear about Trent's Memorial Garden and that there is a place to remember him in Franklin. Long overdue and the brainchild of Anne and Karen. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. In two weeks, we will start my next book, Frozen in Fear, A True Story of Surviving the Shadows of Death by Jane Carson Sandler. I met Jane at CrimeCon three or four times at this point, a lovely, gracious woman and a survivor who would eventually testify against her rapist-turned-killer, Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. I started this podcast with Michelle McNamara's All Be Gone in the Dark, Episodes 1 and 2, on his reign of terror. So now it's time to do a story on a survivor and the aftermath. So that's coming in two weeks. Now please take a few minutes to leave an awesome review and share your thoughts with me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can join Patreon for $4 a month and help me pick our next book that I'll be featuring. 
Links are on my blog at murdershelfbookclub.com with sources, photographs, show notes, our snack recipe, and wine pairing too. Always trust your gut and lock your doors and windows. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbach.